The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Let's do a quick review, remind ourselves where we've been. Uh, I was speaking in Victoria last weekend, and I, I know Dr. Nelson stood in here and did a fine job, I'm sure. So we're continuing on. What are we reading? We are reading the book of Revelation. Now, it's not Revelations, it's Revelation. And we learned that it's a threefold document when you look at the genre. It's an apocalypse, meaning it's an unveiling. Literally, that's what Revelation is, apocalypse, unveiling. It's an ancient form of stylized writing using images and symbols and numbers and so on. We also learned, though, it's more than an apocalypse. It's also a prophecy. It's God speaking into the circumstances of his people to warn them and to encourage them. And we learned, thirdly, it's also a letter. It's a specific document to specific individuals in a specific uh, uh, period of time and a specific place as well. So it's not just something written for everyone, not initially. It was written a, a letter written to seven churches. And I have the seven churches on this perfectly to scale map here. Uh, John wrote it. The Apostle John is the gentleman who wrote it. He wrote it around, scholars figure, around 96 A.D., um, Annos Dominos is what A.D. means. It doesn't mean after death. It means in the year of the, in, um, the, year of the Lord, in the um, year of the Lord, so A.D. 96. And he wrote it here from the island of Patmos, which was, a think of it as a first century um, Alcatraz, sort of like a Roman a prison colony. And he was in prison, John, for refusing to worship Caesar. That's why he was in prison. He was probably in his mid-80s himself when he wrote this letter. Now, who were the original recipients? Well, it was the seven churches, which is like a horseshoe. And John literally must have been thinking in those terms because he literally addressed them in the order of like the horseshoe. So last week, he addressed the church in Ephesus. And this week, it's the church in Smyrna. And we're going to see over these seven uh, weeks, these seven churches, that there was a pattern that John followed, like a template. Uh, that Mick uh, touched on last week. He would begin with the description of the character of Christ, and then John would have a description of what Christ knows about each church with a word of commendation for their strengths and a word of rebuke for their sins of commission or omission. And then John would go with a call to repentance, warning of the consequences if they don't repent. And then John would follow, finalize each church with a description of the reward that would be promised for faithfulness and for overcoming. Now, as we said, last week we looked at the message of the, uh, to the church in the city of Ephesus. Today, it's the message to the church in Smyrna, okay? And as you can see here, Smyrna was sort of next up the coast, just about 50 miles or so north of Ephesus, in the coast a bit with a large gulf, as we're going to see uh, in a moment. So there's, it had water access, Okay. Um, what's the historical context of Smyrna? This is important, because remember, he wrote to a specific church, and Jesus is about to speak to this specific church and the specific circumstances in that church, and he's going to have a word for them. So it'll help us to understand the unique circumstances that Smyrna was facing at that time. The historical context of Smyrna. It's, by the way, it's the only of these seven cities that still exist today, okay? As a city, functioning as a city today. Today... Uh, Smyrna has a present population of about 3 million people. It's the third largest city in modern-day Turkey. Istanbul is the first, Ankara is the second, and then the city is now known as Izmir, which is Turkish for Smyrna. Okay? 
Back then, 2,000 years ago, it was a leading center of business and religious pluralism in the first century. So it had a population of about 200,000 people back then. So that's a large city. It was considered to be the birthplace of Homer, who, who wrote the Iliad, not Homer Simpson, but Homer who wrote the Iliad. It was the home of Polycarp, who is the famous apostolic father. Um, apostolic fathers are, for the most part, individuals who were disciples of the original disciples. Okay? So Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. So the apostle John mentored, mentored Polycarp and appointed Polycarp as the bishop of Smyrna. Okay? Now, Smyrna was called the crown of Asia, or the flower of Asia. That was its title back then. It was 50 miles north of Ephesus, built at the uh, head of a deep gulf, so it gave it an excellent harbor, so it was great for commerce. It competed with Ephesus, so they were a little competition, to be seen as the first of the cities in Asia. In fact, Smyrna loved the word first. They loved the word first. They fought to be first in everything. One of their coins that we found read, first city of Asia in size and beauty. So you can see they loved the word first. Remember that when Jesus speaks to them. Um, they were proud of their heritage of rising from the ashes. They were completely destroyed in 580 BC, and then they were resurrected again in around 290 BC. And they were quite proud of this history of rising from the ashes. Now Smyrna was rabidly loyal to all things Roman. It was, the, it, it was the first city to build a temple to the goddess of Rome. They did that in about 195 BC. First city to do that. They built a temple to Caesar Augustus in 23 AD. They built a temple to Emperor Tiberius in 23 AD. So when a new Caesar would come to throne, right away they'd build a temple to them. They wanted to be seen by Rome as being loyal in all things Roman. They even built a temple to Caesar's wife, so Empress Lydia, and to the Roman Senate. You know, built a temple to them too. Build a temple for everybody in Rome. Let them know we love Rome. Keep the Roman money and influence coming is what they were determined to communicate. The church was most likely planted by the Apostle Paul when he planted the church in Ephesus. Probably a spillover. Now, the specific message to the church in Smyrna. Uh, let's read it uh, just in, in one whole. Uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Just a couple of verses is what it is. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. But what's the message here? Well, as per the pattern, he begins with a description of the character of Christ. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and who came to life again. So the character of Jesus is mirroring uh, and addressing how the Smyrnans saw themselves. They loved to be first. They are proud of them rising from the ashes. He says, well, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and came to life again. As your outline says, Christ self-identifies, borrowing from Yahweh's self-identification language in Isaiah 
44.6. So Christ identifies himself as the first and the last. Now, he does this by actually quoting um, from Isaiah and from Yahweh, Jehovah, God himself. Uh, let me read Isaiah 41, verse 1, or verse 4, I should say. 41.4 says this. Um, Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the Yahweh there is the word. I, the Lord, Yahweh, with, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 43.10, again, Yahweh describing himself. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. He's the only God. Isaiah 48.12 says... Listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Um, and Isaiah 44, 6 says this. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So Jesus Christ as quoted by John here, claims to be Yahweh. I'm the first and the last, Jesus says. Yet, the eternal one died. I'm the first and the last who died and came to life again. So how is this possible? Well, again, this was the question that the early church had to wrestle with as they searched the scriptures for understanding. And this whole concept that Jesus is actually, the son is Yahweh. But how did Yahweh die and come to life again? How is that possible? And this is what the first couple hundred years of the early church, the theologians and even early church philosophers began to work out and study scripture and began to understand what we unpacked a year or so ago, the doctrine of the Trinity, what scripture actually says. And they unpacked what scripture says and how Jesus identified himself as well. And, um, and we learned the difference between Jesus' human nature and his divine nature. And if you want to get more into that, go back and visit our podcast when we unpack the doctrine of the Trinity, where we talked about that, the difference between Jesus' divine nature and his human nature. His divine nature didn't die. His humanity and his human nature, he died. But that person of the Son uh, did not die. He continued to, to live and exist. So, as your outline says, secondly, Christ uses language a church in the midst of suffering needs to hear. Power over death. When you're in the middle of suffering, you need to hear this message, power over death. If you were in our first service, you heard uh, our guests, Kevin and Julia Garrett, uh, speak of while they were in that prison uh, for a couple years, particularly Kevin, um, and how how Christ's message to him impacted him. You'll hear it in the second service, those of you who weren't in the first service. It's this theme over and over again. Power over death. He says, listen, I've defeated death. I am Yahweh. I, I've defeated death. So in the midst of your suffering, people in Smyrna, he's saying, what do you really have to fear? Okay? Okay, so he begins with the character of Christ, the description of the character of Christ, and then what normally happens is it's followed by a description of what Christ knows about the church. But here's what he does. He breaks the previous pattern and he immediately addresses their challenge. He says in verse 9, I know your affliction, your poverty, yet you're rich. 
I know about the slander of, and those who say they are Jews and are not by our synagogue of Satan. Now, this is a loaded verse here. First of all, that word affliction, the Greek word is thalipsis. It means great difficulty and trial. It was the word for an inward crushing pressure. Like, like a, 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 if you can think of a, a, a ship or a, a submarine deep underwater, that pressure around it, just crushing it. Uh, it's the word for things pressing together, even like, uh, if you can think like for an earthquake, it's those, those two plates, tectonic plates rubbing together, and finally one gives, and that's what we call an earthquake. Well, this is an internal earthquake. That's what the word here is. I know about your affliction. I know about the pressure building inside of you, he's saying. As your outline says, it's used in the New Testament for what happens when the kingdom of God bumps up against the kingdom of darkness. That's what this word is for. It's when the kingdom of God bumps up against the kingdom of darkness, like tectonic plates underground for an earthquake. So the, church, the Christians in Smyrna lived in an intensely proud pagan city. Remember this. The people of Smyrna had little to no toleration for any anti-idol outsiders. Remember, they built altars and temples to even Caesar's wife and the Senate. So when people came in who were against idolatry, the people of Smyrna had little or no tolerance for them. You're not part of us. You're not truly Smyrnan if you don't, uh, are not willing to worship at these idols. Keep that in mind. The word poverty... As your outline says, their stores were being boycotted. These Christians, their stores were being boycotted um, because of their stand against idolatry. Their homes were being ransacked, meaning destroyed. Their homes were being ransacked, and they were being blacklisted by employers, meaning nobody would hire them. Oh, you're one of those anti-idol people. No, you know, I'm not going to shop at your store. We're going to destroy your home, and we're not going to hire you. That's what was happening. So this, there was a poverty that was beginning to build up amongst the church, uh, the Christ followers. Things were becoming more and more difficult for Christians in this city as the religious, social, and economic climates were getting hotter and hotter. He says, though, thirdly, yet you're rich. He says, yeah, on one level you're poor, but as your outline says, John's pulling back the veil. That's what Revelation does. Showing things as they truly are. Here's what's really happening, Smyrnans. Yes, on one level, you're poor. That's the nature of an apocalypsis here. Things are not merely as they appear. Remember we said that at the beginning. That's a theme we're going to hear. Things are not merely as they appear. You're poor in one realm, but you are rich in another realm, is what Jesus is saying. And then he says that unusual phrase. I know about the slander and those who say they are Jews and they're not. A synagogue of Satan. Now, isn't this kind of sounding like anti-Semitic? Yeah, anti-Semitic. And, and for centuries, people have accused uh, the book of Revelation of being anti-Semitic here for that very reason. Um, to call a synagogue of Satan, what's up with that? That's pretty harsh. Well, first of all, we've got to remember a couple things. Number one, John was a Jew. So it'd be hard to call him anti-Semitic. He was a Jew himself, Okay. We need to understand the context here. Jews were given special dispensation regarding Caesar worship, meaning Jews were allowed to not have to sprinkle incense on the altar. They had fought for that right and saying, no, we get to be exempt from that. It's completely against our, our religion, and we refuse to do that. And so Jews were allowed to not have to do that. Okay? Now, 
Christians were initially lumped in with Jews. Christians, for the first few decades, were seen as just a Jewish sect because most Christ followers were, in fact, Jews. So as far as the Romans were concerned, Christ followers were just Jews. That's the Messiah. Yeah, they talked about a Messiah. So they're, they're Jews, okay? But it didn't take long for the Jewish community to see the Christ followers as enemies. So the Jewish leaders would publicly distance themselves from the Christians. And this was beginning to happen more and more. And in Smyrna, it appeared that the Jewish leaders took this to a particularly destructive level where they would seek to incite the Roman and pagan authorities against the church. So they would turn on or slander or, or incite or have Christ followers arrested and ostracized and so on. So they were, be, they were becoming aggressively against the early church. That's what appeared to be happening here. As your outline says, so isn't this anti-Semitic? Well, understand John's thinking. Those who reject the Jewish Messiah are not truly Jews in John's thinking. Those who reject the Jewish Messiah, he says you can't be a Jew and reject your Messiah. Not truly a Jew. You might be a Jew physically, but you're not a true Jew in your heart, is what John's saying. These people were apparently turning Christians into the governmental authorities. They were turning the Christians, into governmental authorities. Now, let's remember the words of Jesus here. Um, you might just want to write somewhere on the sideline there, uh, John 8, 31 to 47. John 8, 31 to 47. Listen to Jesus speak on this, alluding to this dynamic here. He says, it says, to the Jews, no, this is John, the gospel, this is John writing this, recording this, remember this. So the same man who wrote Revelation is now writing, wrote the gospel of John. So John writes this, To the Jews who had believed Jesus, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, Oh, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard um, from, from your father. Well, Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come from here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. John remembers those words of Jesus, and that's why he's saying here, I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews, but they're not. No, they're from a synagogue of Satan. 
You can see the context here. So the pattern was, secondly then, a word of rebuke. Okay? But again, as your outline says, Jesus breaks the pattern. There's no word of rebuke here. They're doing things right. They were doing things right. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. There's nothing to rebuke. Thirdly in the pattern, there's a call to repentance. But again, as your outline says, there's no call to repentance because there's no need for repentance. There's no call to repentance because there was no need for repentance. Now, as your outline says again, there's a lesson here, folks. Not every trial and difficulty is the product of disobedience. Sometimes it's the product of obedience. Not every trial and difficulty is the product of disobedience. Sometimes it's actually the product of obedience. You know, for years, it was bigger more when I first became a Christian in the 80s, though it still lingers, uh, the sort of teaching that if you're having difficulty in life, it's because there's sin somewhere, because God doesn't want anyone ever to have any difficulty. If you're ever, ever having any struggles or financial difficulties or anything, it's, it's a sign that you're lacking faith or there's sin in your life. And Jesus kind of, when you study Revelation here and, and his message to the people in Smyrna, that's not true at all. He's not saying, here's why you're struggling. It's because there's sin and you need to repent of this. And then the people of Smyrna, no. He's saying, you're struggling because the enemy actually has targeted you. It's because you're being obedient to my word. That's why you're struggling, is essentially the message here. Second Timothy 3.12 says this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will be persecuted. So you can expect to experience persecution at some level in your life. So, uh, not every trial and difficulty is the product of disobedience. Now, there are examples where people are experiencing trials and difficulties and poverty because they're acting foolishly and sinfully. Yes, that is true. That are, there's a principle. We reap what we sow. Okay. But we reap what we sow is also true when we, we sow obedience. Sometimes we will reap results of that is what, Jesus, is what Paul's saying in Timothy and what Jesus is saying here. Sometimes the product of obedience is persecution when you follow Christ. So, okay, God knows about the pressure building within and around them. That's what Jesus just said. I know about your affliction. I know about the trials and difficulties. So what's God going to do about this building pressure? Okay, If you are living in Smyrna, in AD 96, and you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning, it's the Lord's Day, and hey, everybody, I got good news. We have a letter here from John. No way. Yeah, John's written a letter. God has given him a revelation, and he's actually spoken directly to us, Jesus has, to the church here in Smyrna. Oh, this is incredible. Yeah, gather at, at, uh, at uh, 1030 Sunday morning in the Lower Auditorium, and I'm going to read Christ's words to us. Oh, this is exciting. Okay, so here you are. You're the church in Smyrna. You've gathered. You're sitting here now on a Sunday morning listening to the reading for the first time of the letter of Revelation. What are you hoping to hear next? Okay, so Jesus has just said, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, what's the answer, Jesus? God knows about our affliction and our poverty. He knows about the slander that's sliming our reputations. This is great news. Jesus knows. So let's keep reading and hear what God's going to do about it. Okay, so now here's the reward for faithfulness. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. 
What? Read that again. Did he say, did he just say, don't be afraid because you're not about to suffer? Is that what I heard? No, let me read it again. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. What? And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. What? He just said some of us are going to die. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Not the first death. The second death. What is he saying? That's what we're going to unpack. He says here, what you are about to suffer. Now, as your outline says, that's not entirely encouraging. They had more suffering on the way. Jesus saying, I know about your suffering. And I want you to know you've got more suffering coming down the road. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's what he said. And then he says, the devil will put some of you in prison. Again, pulling back the veil here, revealing the true nature of reality. That's that next blank. He's pulling back the veil. Here's the true nature of reality. Again, things are not merely as they appear. That's the theme here in Revelation. People of Smyrna, there's more going on than meets the eye. Yeah, the Romans are persecuting. Yeah, the Jews are slandering you. But it's actually the synagogue of Satan. It's actually the devil who will put some of you in prison. Okay? John's going to graphically depict this dynamic even more in chapters 12 and chapters 14 where he introduces the dragon and the beasts that come out of the sea and the land and the cosmic battle that is taking place even right now in the heavenly realm. He's just kind of touching it a bit right here. And he says, the devil's going to do this to test you. Now, as your outline says, the Greek word means to prove and to improve. In other words, God uses evil to strengthen us. God actually uses evil to strengthen us. But Joseph said, what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's the same principle that's happening here. <laughs> you've heard it, I'm sure, if you've been around the church at all over the years. It's one of my favorite stories of the dear elderly lady. She was quite poor, and she had no money for food or anything. And so she was praying in her room, um, uh, praying for God to, to, to send her groceries and so on. And some local kids were hiding in her, playing in her side yard, and they heard her by the side window. And they heard her praying, oh God, please, I need food, I need groceries, I have no money. And the kids thought, let's play a joke on Mrs. Jones, an old great-grandma Jones. And so they went and they took some, stole some groceries and food from their parents' kitchens and from the local store and so on, put it in a bag, put it on their front, Grandma Jones' front porch, knocked on the door and ran. Thought, this will be funny. And so she opens the door, oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord, Jesus, you heard my prayer. And they jump out from the bushes and they say, no, no, Grandma Jones, that wasn't Jesus, that wasn't God. We're the ones who, who brought you this. And she said, the devil may have brought it, but the Lord sent it. <laughs> and that's what John's saying here. The devil is going to put you in prison to test you, to actually to prove, prove how powerful you are and to improve you. That's not, he doesn't think that's why he's doing it, but that's what's going to happen. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he says, but you'll be in prison for 10 days. What does that mean? Now again, let's go back to a principle we began with. 
Numbers in Revelation, are they statistics or are they symbols? Remember? And you can decide either way, but you kind of got to go either way with this. Can't, well, that's a statistic and that's a symbol because I choose that one to be a statistic and this one to be a symbol this time. Um, I would put to you, you could make, I think the more powerful case when you're dealing with apocalyptic writing is they are symbolic. So 10 days, what is this? Well, as your outline says, 10 was symbolic of completeness. Uh, in a sort of a human completeness in the Jewish mind, like 10 fingers, 10 toes. You know, it's 10 is, you've got all your fingers, all your toes. So it was, it was, there's a lot of numbers that meant completeness, but each number had a sort of a different genre, a different uh, quality of completeness. So this was a symbol of completeness. So this was a complete trial. But defining the time also shows that God is ultimately in control. When God defines the time, whoever defines the time is the one who's in control. Okay, that's kind of the thinking. So 10 days, this isn't 10 weeks, it's not 10 months, not 10 years, not 10 decades, it's 10 days. And so Jesus is saying, listen, it's going to be a limited time and it's not going to be a very long time, okay? It, but you're going to have a complete trial. He's going to put you in jail to test you for 10 days. So it's not this whole big long time, but there's going to be a brief season when this is going to happen. Okay? And so it's almost like, you know, I have a sort of a DVD thing for a workout that I'd used for a long time. And, and, and one of the workouts, the guy says, okay, now we're going to do this for one more minute, one minute. And his phrase is always, you can do anything for a minute. Go on, you can do anything for a minute. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Listen, this is 10 days. It's just 10 days. It's just small. You can do this. All right. So the church in Smyrna is being told that God knows their situation. He knows how difficult it is. They're also being told that it's going to get worse before it gets better. But they're being told that it'll only be for a season. And that brings us to, fifthly, Christ's advice for those who are facing persecution. Here's what, first what we should do. He says, be faithful even to the point of death. What he's saying here is, in the next blanks, don't waver... Don't waver, W-A-V-E-R. I mean, don't go to the left, don't go to the right, don't give up. Don't waver if physical deliverance does not arrive. Don't waver, don't bail if physical deliverance does not arrive. Just as Christ did not waver, small blank, three words, sorry. Just as Christ did not waver under the same circumstances. Okay, remember that back in chapter in 2 verse 8 uh, to the angel of the church in Smyrna these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again just as I faced it you may face it as well don't waver just as I didn't waver you know there's a famous quote from a famous Christian martyr um, it's one of the most moving quotes over the centuries uh, of, of martyrs this Christ follower stood before the Roman officials in front of a crowd of people. And the Roman official called upon this Christian, said, worship Caesar and renounce Christ, or else we're going to burn you at that stake. And here was the Christian's reply. The Christian said this, and I quote, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my Savior and my King? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season. After a little while, it's quenched but you're ignorant of the everlasting punishment that's prepared for the wicked. That man who said that was Polycarp, the student of the Apostle John, the Bishop of Smyrna. And when he said it, 
He was standing before the Roman officials in Smyrna. And he was burned at the stake in Smyrna. About 60 years after the church received this letter. So this happened. John is warning them. It's going to get worse. There's going to be a season. Some of you are going to die. And you can hear, as we read later, read later in Revelation, John or Polycarp clearly had read Revelation. So he's talking about the fire that's awaiting and so on, and the eternal destruction. He, he, he's alluding to this here. So what we should do is be faithful even to the point of death. Listen, what Satan is seeking to do is to get people to renounce Christ and worship Caesar. If he kills you and you never renounce Christ, he loses. If he kills you, he loses. Do you see that? In the big picture of things, his goal is to get you to renounce Christ. The worst he can do is kill you. And what John is saying here, and Jesus is saying is, what he will do, I will give you life as your victor's crown. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Okay? So, again, he's trying to get the eternal big picture here. What is the second death? Well, the first death is physical death. When the soul is separated from the body. Your body, they can kill your body, but can't kill your soul. So, your soul is separated from your body. That's the first death. The second death is eternal death. That's when the resurrected soul and body is separated from God forever. First death, soul separated from the body. Second death is when the soul and perhaps the new resurrected body is then separated from God forever. Death is all about separation in the Jewish mind. So, the second death... Um, Revelation 2.11 says, as we just wrote, you'll not be hurt uh, at all by the second death. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15 is another allusion to the second death. Revelation 20, 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 6 to 8 says, he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they'll be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, here's where people can go off in different directions here. Keeping in mind the context of those verses we just read. This is an apocalyptic document. So scholars differ over what this second death represents. Some see this second death, this lake of fire, burning sulfur, and so on, as a literal physical description. Meaning a literal physical separation in a literal physical fire. Okay? There are some who believe that. There's a literal fire. Um... There's some challenges to that view, meaning it, Jesus referred to it as outer darkness. So how do you have fire and outer darkness? Um, but those are issues that can be addressed by people who hold to that view. Some see it as a literal but non-physical description, meaning there's a literal separation, but it's merely symbolized by fire in this passage. Uh, and again, because if we're dealing with souls and so on, how would literal physical fire harm a soul. Now, if it's a glorified body, that might be different. But then again, 
a fire consumes, but this is an eternal fire forever. So is this like this literal fire that consumes but doesn't consume forever? That, these people would say that doesn't really make sense. And plus, this is an apocalyptic document. It's full of symbols and fire and all this stuff and sulfur are all symbolic in the whole book. So to, to suddenly make it a literal physical description, it's kind of cherry-picking what's literal and physical here and doesn't really fit with the genre. So they're saying, no, this is literal. Yes, there is literally a separation forever, but this isn't a physical description. This is a symbolic description. And then another group, some see it as a symbolic description of the annihilation of the soul. They would say, literally, a second death, what happens to the... A second death is what happens to the body at the first death, it's destroyed, will one day happen to the soul at the second death. So these people say, just like the body is destroyed at the first death, the second death is where the soul is destroyed, symbolically in this lake of fire and sulfur. That's the second death. So just as your body no longer exists at the first death, there'll come a day when you will be eternally separated from God. How? You will be annihilated. Your soul will cease to exist just like your body ceased to exist at the first death. So there are different options from which you can choose. I have decided on one that I'm not going to share with you. But uh, in my mind, I, I lean towards one, though I don't know for sure. So these are one of these things that we hold loosely to. All we know is that God knows what he's doing. Let's conclude before we um, go to some questions. What can we learn from Christ's message to the first century church in Smyrna? Trials, troubles, and afflictions are inevitable when kingdoms collide. Uh, when this happens, it's not a sign. This is not on your outline. This is for free. It, when this happens, it isn't a sign of sin in your life necessarily. When it happens, don't panic. Remember that God's in control. And remember that God will meet you in the midst of your difficulty. That's what the church in Smyrna learned. Let's open it up for questions in the last couple minutes. Anything that we've talked about today you'd like to ask questions about? Yes, John. Get quickly to the question, John. It's always difficult uh, to interpret a parable uh, literally because parables, the purpose of a parable is the big idea. The purpose of the parable is not the details of the parable. The details of the parable bring you to this experience, this thought, and it's this, then the big idea uh, is, the, uh, is the purpose of a parable. It's the, it's the conclusion, the application. So... You know, to take, the, for example, the parable of the Lazarus and the rich man, they die and go into hell and there's this gulf separating the two. The whole purpose of that parable is not the details of it, to make them all literal and exact, but it's the purpose that, that there's going to be a separation happening one day. Um, I'm not, you know, when, when Jesus told parables, he was telling stories and creating, you know, creating figures and making up scenarios and so on. So I would be very leery 
and it's scholars and exegetes and hermeneutical uh, professors and so on would say, when you're interpreting a parable, don't build any doctrines based on a detail within the parable. You can build a doctrine based on the purpose of the parable, but the detail within the parable would be pretty flimsy. Um, so, again, but Jesus is... I, could argue quite easily that Jesus is using figures of speech there. When the kingdom comes, you are going to be sad when you see Abraham, you know, the, the great banquet and so on. So I'm not thinking Jesus is literally saying there's going to be a giant table and we're all going to be sitting around this table, millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of people around that table. And you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there, and you're not going to be there. You're going to be standing outside the table. I mean, see, it works for us because we can picture that and we get the sense of what Jesus is saying, that you are going to be separated from a great celebration, separated from something wonderful. Um, but is that something wonderful literally sitting around a table on a chair? And who's going to be doing the serving there? And all like, what are we eating? And who's going to do the dishes afterwards? And, you know, is it that level of minutia? I don't think so. I think there's something more symbolic happening there. I may not even recognize Ruth in heaven. Yes, you might not recognize Ruth in heaven. Yes, it's true. I mean... We touched on this when we talked about marriage somewhere in one of these classes, you know. Um, scripture says we won't be married in heaven. Now, I realize for some that's good news, perhaps. <laughs> but Scripture says we'll be like the angels. There's no another giving of marriage and so on. Well, isn't that going to be sad? Well, no, not necessarily, because what marriage was designed to, to fulfill now, our relationship with God will ultimately fulfill then. Um, our, our marriage partners meet a need in us now that we will not have in heaven. Did I see a hand over here? Yes. Are there actually angels in charge of the two churches? Like it says to the angel of the church of. So yep. are there angels in church The question is, are there actual angels in charge of churches? We addressed this a couple weeks ago where some would say yes. Some would say angel refers to the lead pastor, messenger of the church. Some would say angel refers to um, an actual angel overseeing each of those churches, literally an angel overseeing those churches. Um, some would say angel refers to more the spirit, the, 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 the attitude of that church. Um, and as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, I think you could make a very strong case that there are actually angels who perhaps would be over each congregation or at least each city. Um, you could make a strong case because the word angel for the rest of Revelation clearly seems to mean an angelic being. So I think you could make a strong case that yes, there are in fact angels who have been overseeing, overseeing, if not congregations, uh, regions of Christ followers. Yes, back corner. Great question. The question is, the Gospels are not apocalyptic genre, but Jesus there talks about lake of fire and gnashing of teeth and so on. So why are we, are we cherry-picking here? Um, Jesus, again, <laughs> Jesus quoted lots of different metaphors or word pictures when he's talking about. So he talked about the lake of fire, and he also talked about outer darkness when it comes to second death. Well, which is it? It can't be both. It can't be a lake of fire. Picture a lake of fire. Physical, literal fire. That's flames. That's, whoa, that's bright. And it can't be outer darkness. It's one or the other. Unless Jesus isn't speaking literally, again, he's speaking about the nature of these things. 
there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, lake of fire. Again, he's speaking of Gehenna, which is the Valley of Hinnom. And I literally, when I was in Israel, lived on the Valley of Hinnom for three weeks. The place where I stayed was literally on the Valley of Hinnom. I look out my window and I was literally in hell for three weeks. It was, it's a valley outside of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem now, but outside of the walls of Jerusalem, where the, the Jews uh, turned it into a dump because there was a season there when, when the Jews were rebellious under king, I forget the king, um, but he turned it into a place where they worshipped Moloch. And they had a statue to Moloch, he had his arms out like this, and they would take babies and put them on the statue and burn those babies alive as a form of worship. The screaming, and it was terrible. And so what King Josiah did, I believe, he, a godly king came to the throne, he turned that into the dump of Jerusalem. And so the fires never ceased. In the dump there, the fires are always burning. And so Gehenna, Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, is what Jesus used, he likened that to hell. It's a lake of fire. It's burning. The fires are never put out. But it's also outer darkness. So you can see it's a metaphor. It's, it's everything awful. It's everything wonder. It, it, not wonderful. It's everything awful. It's everything terrible. It, it's, it's wasted lives. Uh, it's potential lost. It's screaming. It's, it's, it's sadness. All in one. That's the second death. That's hell. Um, so again, he's using metaphors. As, or some could say, and you, you could hold to that view, that it's literal physical, and that's a view that you could have. But I'm, personally, I don't see that as I compare different things Jesus said about hell. I think he's describing the nature of the experience as opposed to the physical description. But you could argue with me and be, wrong, and, and be right. Yes? You have to speak louder, I'm sorry. Number two, poverty, I'm sorry. Oh, poverty. Stores were being boycotted, homes ransacked, and they were being blacklisted. Um, no, he, he's, I think, talking about their literal... He says, this is your experience. I know your experience. The question is, poverty... You're wondering if it refers to something spiritual? No, no, if it's the persecuted church nowadays. Oh, so you're saying is it the persecuted church nowadays. So again, what you're doing is what some will do, and that is, say, these churches are not, he's not speaking individually to them, but they all represent a dispensation or a time in history. And it's very symbolic of nowadays and so on. Um, you could do that, but I don't think that's what John was originally saying, because that would be meaningless to them in Smyrna when they received this letter. They're not th- saying, oh yes, what he means here is the poverty of churches 2,000 years from now. Spiritually, I don't think so. So I think when he's saying poverty, he's literally speaking to them. He's speaking to the church in Smyrna. I know your situation. I know your, your circumstances. I know your poverty. Right away they would know, yes, we are poor. He says, yet, when I pull back the veil, you're actually quite rich because of who you are in me. So I think that's pretty clear there what he's speaking to. Good question. Other questions? You can see it's starting to get more intricate. As we go along, and this is the easy part. We haven't even got into the apocalyptic stuff yet. Wait till we get into the really freaky stuff. It's going to get really interesting. God bless you folks. We'll continue next week, I believe, right? Yes.